Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Torah Shack podcast. Just a few things before we kick off. First of all, I want to thank everybody who came out on Sunday evening to the Sugar Club for the podcast for Palestine. It was an amazing and emotional night and I'm putting together the audio for that right now and it will be available for our members on patreon.com forward slash Torah Shack as soon as I can get the edit done. So if you're a member, keep an eye on your feed and if you're not, please join us. Throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, and for that you'll get all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed. You'll never miss a pod, and they're entirely plea-free, so you don't have to listen to me beg. But unfortunately, this is the situation we're in. We've no ads, we've no sponsors. We rely entirely on you to pay it forward and keep this independent media platform going. I think if nothing else, the last few months have demonstrated that independent media actually really matters and can punch way above its weight. And as I often say, we are pretty much the bottom rung of the Irish media ladder, but we have to start somewhere. So please click the link, it says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack and see if there's a level that suits your budget that helps keep conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. Thanks, now enjoy the show. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Breed McGrath, who is the Director of Public Affairs at Oxfam Ireland, and we are discussing the report that has been released by Oxfam on inequality, not just in Ireland, but globally, um, and released to coincide with the billionaires get together um in the swiss resort of the name has gone out of my head i can't remember it breed davos davos i don't know what yeah that's complete brain fog breed it's wonderful to have you on the podcast it's great to be here rory now breed um we have to get a disclaimer out of the way we know each other many many years and um right. it is it is great to see you again and you're in chile for a few years so it's wonderful to have you back in ireland and you're in this new role um maybe you could set out for us yeah the report it's got a lot of um coverage here the figures are really really stark uh in terms of the report and the main kind of i suppose headline headlines within it bring us through would be okay. great I will. I will. And so prepare yourself, which I know won't bother you or your listeners for a lot of millions and billions, as they say. Yeah. Um, so the, the global report straight off the bat. So uh, this is the 11th year Oxfam has done this report and they always uh, release it to coincide with Davos. So since 2020, since the beginning of the decade, the world's five richest men have seen their fortunes double from in around $400 billion to 800 odd billion dollars, while at the same time, 5 billion people have become poorer. So the wages of about 800 million workers have dropped in real terms. They've lost about 25 days wages. And at the, at the current rate, Oxfam are saying it, within a decade, the world will most likely see its first trillionaire, but it would take 229 years to end poverty. So this is, if nothing changes, that's where we'll be. Um, so it's, it's just a story of, unfortunately, rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, and that's the global story. In Ireland, the top two billionaires have more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. And um, 1%... Two people, two people have more wealth 
than the bottom 50%, half the population who don't yeah, have much exactly. wealth. Exactly. Now, the, again, this this is focused largely on wealth. Um, the 1% uh, in Ireland hold about 30% of the financial assets. And um, yeah, so basically the the inequality in Ireland is not as bad, right, as the global tale. And that's true. And we know that. But it's still there, right? It's still absolutely there. And, and the the link between, there's a number of angles I want to go on this. The first one yeah. is the link between kind of what has happened post-COVID, uh, that inequality has accelerated in terms of the gap. And the other angle is how this links to climate change, which is a really, I think, significant um, aspect. And thirdly, then, is what can we do about it? Like, what are actual real solutions that we can that can be implemented and, and what can people do, of course? Just on the first one, in the last, like, you know, you say since 2020, are there specific things that has happened in the nature of the economies and what has happened in the last couple of years that's led to this acceleration of inequality? COVID had an impact, right, again, particularly on the lower uh, 50% of the population. There was a v- great vaccine inequality as well. Now, this report really does deal with corporate power, yeah. which I should probably um, mention. Um, the other thing is obviously the war, war on Ukraine, current war in Gaza, and that has created, again, like really significant food shortages, particularly in places like the Horn of Africa, but globally as well, um, and the cost of living crisis. So, yeah. let's say, and, but the rich have seen their riches uh, grow at three times the rate of inflation, while the rest of us, let's say, are struggling with the rate of inflation. So what has happened? Big kind of global shocks that have had a massive macroeconomic effect and then microeconomic effect on all of us, but seem to have basically not touched or in fact benefited those at the very top, which is extremely worrying. And the connection, let's say, with corporate power that Oxfam does in this report is they lay out how it's not just that these rich people are extremely rich to the extent of, you know, the wealth is so stratospheric as that some of these people are literally spending it trying to get themselves into the stratosphere. Um, but that seven out of 10 of the, let's say, top 10 global corporations, seven out of those 10, the CEO is a billionaire or the principal shareholder is a billionaire. So it's this whole idea that wealth begets wealth, mm. that it's linked to corporate power and that it's not just basically moneyed people, that the people have who have the money also have the corporate power. And that relates then and connects to political power. So it's it's not just sitting on cash that keeps rising and rising. That power is felt by all of us. And I think we can all accept that even in our lifetimes, there are certain few companies that have, you know, largely taken over how we do a lot of our business. So that's a problem as well as laid out in the report. Um, the rise in monopolies, uh, windfall profits or supernormal profits. and this is all the time where we know 800 million people are below the poverty line. Many of them will go to bed hungry tonight. And unfortunately, not just specifically, but like some of those will be in Ireland as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we know in terms of the cost of living crisis over the last 
you know, two or three years. And, and of course, during COVID, we saw, you know, the wages, job losses again amongst, you know, lower income groups, um, wages being cut. And yet at the same time, as you described, you know, some of the key industries, pharmaceuticals, um, the large kind of global corporates, Googles, they um, and others continued to make significant profits. And of course, you say that it's the structure of these companies as well in terms of the the nature of that the wealth not just trickling up but flowing upwards it's it's just this you know this idea of the trickle down um economy has been completely shattered it's not a trickle down it's a flood upwards i think that's right like i'm not too sure has trickle down ever been true um i'm <laughs> like uh, well it it probably wasn't but it was a a a a narrative, an idea that, you know, in terms of neoliberal thinking and, you know, most governments managed to convince people at some level that at some point there would be a trickle down. And, of course, it was an economic strategy of um, essentially to reduce taxation and reduce the role of trade unions um, to privatise the public sector back from the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher and Reagan onwards. It was always a myth, but it was a one that gained popular um in a way a certain level of consent and agreement because it was this idea oh, at some point if we work hard enough we will get that little bit of a trickle down and that will help but it was i think you're right it was always a myth yeah i i i can't think of where i do i i think well, i think a little bit back more to la mass and the idea of the rising tide lifts all boats yeah. i think there's a little more in that as an mm. idea um than trickle down. But I think we have figured out now that economic growth isn't an end in itself, nor should it be. And that if we are to be sustainable about how we go about things, even just in a societal term, so even if you take aside the environment, just to have a sustainable society, it makes no sense for these vast disparities. And when you see countries or even areas within countries that have these massive gulfs, it's actually in some ways sad to see. Like I think of South Africa oftentimes when I visualize this and you see where the rich live in South Africa and they are surrounded, like it's all barbed wire at the top, massive walls you can't see inside, secure, pay, private security men outside, huge big dogs, tools to the nines, you know. Mm. And like even I would not like to be the ultra rich living in those ghettos essentially as they are. Um, it 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 just doesn't make sense for anyone. And and just to give people a sense of of who these people are, you the two billionaires um in Ireland. One of them is John Graken, who a uh, owned or owns one of the largest real estate um Lone Star, if I'm right, uh, one of the large real estate funds um, who was involved in investing, uh, i.e. buying up significant amounts of land and debt here and developing real estate. And the other, um, who is the other person? I think his name is Shapur Mistry, who is uh, uh, an Indian-born businessman who does engineering and construction construction. But I suppose, yeah, Oxfam in Ireland particularly, I know a lot of the global figures are really important and they're important to figure out in relation to Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, all these mm. characters and what they're doing 
in our like to a certain extent we're not so into personalizing it um like I, I don't know the particular personal details of these people, how much tax they pay, how much tax they don't pay. Our our point is a kind of more macro point. It's not so much look at these exact human beings, although that is important. It's look at the trend, look at what's going on and look at the gulf. And how can we, like we look at these, you know, top five richest men in the world and that they have more than 5 billion people combined. And we think, okay, but that's some of, I think there's this idea of that's just the way it always is. That's mm. the way it all going to be. But there's nothing inevitable about that. There's nothing accidental about that. Like we would say that that comes about because that's allowed to take place. Like either individual governments or the global governments is allowing that scenario. And if those 8 billion people were somehow able to connect and understand their power, like this situation could be changed. I think we need to tackle the idea of the inevitability of it and that it was that it was always the way. And we I, definitely don't have to subscribe, as you say, to neoliberal ideas that are just economically illiterate in man in many senses and do terrible damage in any countries where they're deployed. And to forge a new kind of way of economic thinking that empowers workers, consumers, and citizens. And it, of course, it does link as well to like this rise in inequality over the last twenty years, to the rise of the far right, the rise of Trumpism, because in behind all that is essentially the protection of that of the you know of the the billionaires and they've managed to create this narrative which gets attention away from the billionaires and onto immigrants in particular is the is and we're seeing it here as well the you know the the protests in Ross Gray we're seeing all this you know anti-asylum seeker um sentiment and you're just going you know this this argument over you know we don't have and obviously there's different um, groups within it, but obviously, you know, the far right are, are going after it in terms of a racist argument. But there is some people there who are saying, you know, we don't have services and they've been whipped into it. But, you know, the argument that should be made is look at all these resources. Why are we saying, you know, blaming asylum seekers, stop like all this anger and you're just going as, um, uh, I can't remember which movie it was, you know, look up, just look up and see you know, how we are being manipulated. And it's just so sad to see, you know, I think that um, and, and that anti-asylum seeker, anti-immigrant sentiment is also not just by accident, I suppose, as well. I think it is linked to defending at some level this rise in inequality and get the attention off the billionaires onto, as, you know, historically, uh, divide, divide and conquer. Well, I think that's totally true. And I like I've always thought that like part of the greatest cynical act ever is the Republican Party in the United States and how they have amongst their rank and file in relation to voters, right, people who would actually be kind of very, very poor, yeah. even by Irish term. And you go, how 
in the Lord's name, do they get people to vote for upper echelons who essentially are minding big corporations and minding this billionaire wealth? What kind of a trick have they pulled in order to do that? And how they've done that is to, on the one hand, do that lie of the American dream of if you work hard, you too can be here rather than you hardly inherit this wealth or in order to be there. And they, it's like, it's so cynical and it's so appalling and they, and, and it's coming here now as well. It's this divide and conquer idea. If we can otherize people that, um, ordinary people come into contact on a daily basis, well, then we can create a different enemy because if they really saw who the true enemies were of, um, their own, like of their own inequality, then they would act differently. They would vote differently and they would, they would come together. So I just, I just think at every opportunity, we need to take apart that lie. And it's one of the biggest lies out there and deconstruct it. Like there are a group of patriotic millionaires who, uh, signed a letter th- this week saying, oh, we actually want to pay our fair share of tax. And yeah. one of those is Gail Disney. Now, let's say she has a few bob. And what she says is there's more than enough wealth in the world to solve the world's problems. The problem is it's con- concentrated in the hands of the few. So like even there are millionaires and billionaires who are actually saying, please tax us more. Please understand that even we get the in- the unequal world that we're living in and we would like to contribute. So like, I think we need to, we need to start looking at that and that idea. And, and just on that, in terms of kind of suggestions and proposals for how we address this you have some in terms of particularly around taxing wealth but investing in public services maybe you could set out kind of the key ones you're proposing yeah so the the kind of global call from oxfam and it's in ireland as well is a wealth tax so this has been proposed in lots of countries it's in existence in the likes of norway switzerland spain colombia and it's basically where you tax um, starting at pe- uh, people with 5 million worth of wealth, then 50 million on a progressive basis and up to 1 billion. And the Swiss example is that they're generally pulling in about 1% of GDP. That doesn't sound that much, but it's, it actually is quite, quite a lot. So 1% of GDP in Ireland would be about 5 billion. Now that's not to be sneezed at. Um, Oxfam figures are at a flat rate. It's in around that number. It could, if you really were able to implement the progressive taxation, possibly come in at around 9 billion. Again, what you're looking at there is trying to get around people who do what's called aggressive tax planning or, um, you know, hiring very fancy lawyers to make sure they don't pay tax. Or also you're trying to stop, uh, put in stops against capital flight. But again, revenues around the world now are getting better at information sharing. So the more global this is, the more likely it is to succeed. So at EU level, at G20 level and at UN level. So that's number one is a wealth tax. Number one, get that money into the public purse. And just as an aside on that, like obviously organizations like Oxfam are in favor of philanthropy and great good can be done on that basis. But we feel philanthropy is all well and good, 
but discharge your duty to the public purse first. So let's say pay your fair share of tax and then do the philanthropy. Secondly, we're talking about kind of closing loopholes that exist and they do still exist in Ireland and a, a, a conglomeration of NGOs in the ta- yeah, tax justice network have suggested that about 13 billion in Ireland of, is, uh, is foregone in tax by off- people offshoring money. And that's not even going down the road of corporation tax. And the other one, which is a little bit it's less headline grabbing, but I think it's very. I important. have it. I have it. Ireland is full. Ireland is full of tax loopholes for the rich. <laughs> That's it. Ireland is full of loopholes. Is to is to implement the recommendations on the of the Commission on Taxation and Welfare. So this was a group of people that came together. What they said about wealth tax is quite interesting. They said, put wealth tax into abeyance until you fix the following, right? And by that, they mean methods to tax wealth, such as capital acquisitions tax, capital gains tax. They're talking about increasing local property tax, putting in a site value tax. So I suppose the the big thing that we always talk about in tax in Ireland is broadening the tax base. We need to broaden the tax base. But why does that always mean broaden means at the bottom? Let's say there's lots of ways to, to do that. But more importantly, they talk about progressivity. And we do have kind of a largely progressive in international terms, uh, PAYE tax system, but where we come out really badly in global terms is on taxing wealth. We don't do it in this country and we don't do it properly. So I suppose discharge your duty to the state first, not just as a legal obligation, but, and here's where it might sound a bit idealistic, as a patriotic act, right? Uh, All of us, when we pay our tax, whether we like it or not, are contributing to wider society. Now, we may quibble, absolutely, with how the government goes about that or how the state system goes about that, but we have to do that first and then figure out then the redistributive elements of it, which again need a lot of work, need a lot of modelling. You've got to make sure that once you pull in this tax that it gets to where it needs to be. It, it, but in the very first instance, can we at least get an effective rate of tax off these people? Like, you know, the two billionaires you spoke of are the ones like as in, I don't know who's paying what tax in Ireland. Obviously, that's their private details. But we know that the ultra rich run around the world, hopping from country to country in order to avoid paying tax. I think we have to make that basically morally unacceptable. And 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 we know that they use, you know, the IFSC, the Irish, you know, financial um, various vehicle, tax efficient vehicles are helping the global wealthy um, and corporations substantially minimise their and, and decrease their tax bill. Um, you know, Ireland is very much part of that infrastructure creating it you know we have the real estate investment funds here as well you know paying very little if any tax and engaging in quite negative forms of investment and turning housing into a a commodity but just on that point you're making about the billions because the some of the arguments around the government has been making about you know we've had this budget surplus now for two years very significant surpluses 
And the government has argued, well, we can only invest a small amount of that now in infrastructure because we need to put it away for a rainy day fund. And of course, you know, generation rent is jumping up and down going, we're dying in a flood here, literally of lack of homes. But anyway, but our future pension funds. But if you taxed wealth properly, as you're saying there, you're talking about having an additional, you know, you know, potentially closing tax loopholes as well, Te- a minimum 10 billion additional a year to invest in things like healthcare, housing, climate change infrastructure, um, you know, public services, education. It just seems like we're, and yet again, I'm coming back to you, if all this anger turned on, you know, immigrants because there's a lack of services and you're just going, hang on a minute, you know, this, th- we need to get the focus on, the real cause of the lack of services, which is this inequality and the failure to tax wealth. Yes, I think so. I think you're totally right about Ireland's role in this, which is something we're we're all kind of very personally uncomfortable about. But yeah. when you go looking at global reports, they just straight up talk about Ireland as a tax haven, you know, yeah. and they have no problem doing it, like very reputable people and organisations. So I think that's something that we need to figure out. Um, I, I don't mind putting things away for a rainy day, right? I, like, I think that's a good idea in the context of windfall taxes and in the context of corporate tax receipts that, you know, we're not sure of it, like when, when things might go wrong. And not too long ago, things did go wrong and we weren't in a position. I think we forget really quickly in this country, to be honest. I think now we have this idea of the coffers are full. Everything is grand. We now, just I will say work. I argued back in 2010 when austerity was hitting that even then we could have taxed wealth, which would have reduced the level of austerity required. Well, that is totally true. And even then, what we should have done and the ECB and other uh, kind of huge uh, organisations were party to this until they changed their opinion, thank God, uh, we could have done a counter-cyclical thing then rather than squeeze the already squeezed. Like even as an economic point of view, we also could have not just let everyone else internationally who had ready cash come in and buy at the bottom, which they also so clearly did, of what essentially is strategic assets. Let's say Ireland's public housing stock is a strategic uh, part of our infrastructure. You know, it's a national asset. Um, even just housing in general. So I think these are things we need to guard against, not be so complacent now. I know everyone talks about guarding against complacency, but I think people now do think, sure, it's grand, there's loads of money. Every time the government are coming out again, they're sort of shocked by the increase in tax receipts, and that's good. So I am fine with putting things away if you believe that money is not necessarily like um, sustainable, sustainable, and you may not get it in two years' time. What I'm not fine with is leaving taxation sitting there in the bank accounts of the people who absolutely do not need it. And for example, if you implemented the recommendations of the Commission on Taxation and Welfare, the Irish uh, F- Fiscal Advisory Council, and again, they wouldn't conceive themselves as uber radical, have just estimated that implementing those would bring in about 15 billion. So I know the figures are eye-watering. Say you bring in three or four billion on a wealth tax, say you bring in 15 billion 
on um, the Commission on Taxation and Welfare's recommendations. Say you close loopholes and pull in about 10 billion there. Even if those figures aren't exactly um, like we can't know how right they are, right, until we actually start to implement them. But it's really clear that there is a significant quantum there for the taking that could come into the public purse in a much more sustainable way. So you don't have to panic that it won't be there into the future. And particularly if you work at EU level and internationally for this tax justice, then you can kind of close off uh, some of the avenues that people have to skip off merrily into the sunset without paying a cent. Like I saw something recently, now it goes back to a CNAG report from 2015 or 2016, something like this, but that CEOs in Ireland were paying less tax than their secretaries. Incredible. Now, tell me how that is okay, equitable, just, or even moral. I think we have to start making the moral argument. And I think we have to, even people like the managing director of the IMF have said that their modelling is that if you tax extreme wealth, you don't endanger economic growth. Now, we can talk about whether you want economic growth at all, but just if that's your metric, if that's the thing that you're afraid of, bodies like the IMF are saying, don't be afraid of that. Yeah. And, and, and I think that there is increasing understanding and, and it's, you know, the IMF as well now will accept this, what you referred to earlier about that counter cyclical investment that at times of austerity, um, at t- sorry, at times of financial crisis, like we saw during COVID, the response is not austerity, but actually to continue to invest and maintain whatever you can do to maintain that investment. Because there is an understanding, if you don't invest in healthcare, in housing, in education, the economy will actually not continue to function. And the realisation that actually we do need a bigger state and public investment and proper public investment, not just as a good thing, but actually for economic development um, and societal cohesion as well, social cohesion. And it, it is, I think, you know, I always remember one of the, the best books that I ever read and I always um, promote them is The Spirit Level um, by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. And I spoke to Richard on this podcast before and listeners will be familiar with it, but it's always one I go back to. The arguments and, and the evidence that they showed how, you know, more equal societies did better on every metric. And when you see this growing inequality, you know, people experience it. They feel it. They feel the status division. They feel the status anxiety. Um, and it is it is alongside the actual very real gaps in investment in healthcare and housing. Um, so it is something that, you know, really needs from multiple angles needs to be addressed. Breed, I really appreciate you coming on today and it was great to chat. And if people want to read that report, where would they be able to find it? So they can go on to Oxfam.org or Oxfam Ireland um, and it's readily available as is a 28 page methodology piece if they want to look into that. But um, the macro points are true and I think we just need to hold on to the idea and go, there's something we can do about it. We just don't have to be passive policy takers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in this year of elections, um, we'll have local elections and European elections, inequality and taxing wealth needs to be put um, absolutely on the gen- on the agenda. And we will do that. Listen, Bria, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you and um, hopefully to have you back again sometime. 
Lovely. Thank you, Rory. Thank you. Bye bye. And to our listeners, thank you as always supporting us. We had really incredible feedback from um, the podcast we did with the uh, Dr. Meg Ryan from the Irish Psychologist for Palestine. And just a shout out, the live podcast um, for Palestine is on in the Sugar Club um, on Sunday the 28th. And we're really looking forward to that. And we hope you can get along. You can get your tickets um, from patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Thanks to Tony and to Dean for doing great work on organising that. Um, and listen, thank you so much for all the feedback you're giving on the podcast for listening to them. We always ask you, please share them around and um, let people know you're listening. And thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you all very, very soon.